Welcome to our second week of our podcast, Your Week with St. Luke's. We are continuing our theme of the characters in your life story by looking at the characters of David. And the podcast for this week will have Dr. Ryan Benfilio, who is again with Candler Foundry at Emory University, talking to us about what is my favorite character, the adversary or the antagonizer. This promises to be a great week as we realize that the antagonizer for David is not just Goliath, but King Saul, who acts as an adversary all throughout David's life and really defines kind of how David lives his kingship. So let's join in on our lecture with Dr. Ryan. Hey, friends, and welcome back to our course on David. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I teach Old Testament here at Emory's Candler School of Theology. And I'm filming from my office, a place that I have not been in all that often in the past two years, but I'm glad to be back. My books are here. Uh, my little stuffed animal Moses is here. You can see him right uh, on this side of the screen. It actually was a gift to my son when he was six months old from a former student. So I like to keep my little Moses around for inspiration, for correction. I like to think of him as my teaching assistant for these courses. So if you have questions or complaints, send them to Moses and he'll get back to you. Uh, friends, it is good to be studying uh, this really interesting character of David with you. And one of the things that we talked about in our first week of this study is that one way to think about David is through the various supporting characters in his story. There's some really interesting folks that David interacts with and has relationships with. And our idea in this course is that we, one way we get to know David deeply is through understanding the relationships that David has with these different characters. Now, last week, we looked at two initial characters in David's life and story. These were Hannah and her son, Samuel. Now, in many ways, these two characters come before David. They are heralds or harbingers, not only for David, but also really for the establishment of the monarchy as a whole. Now, here in this second week, we're going to turn to another set of characters. And these characters, or the type of character we're going to turn to, should be very familiar to you from film and literature. I want to talk about the antagonists, or, or maybe even the adversaries in David's story. Well, we know adversaries from film and literature. In fact, I would say that there are very few good stories that don't have a good adversary in them. You know, these are people, whether henchmen or bad guys or whatever we call them or think of them, they are people that anger or alienate or annoy or provoke the protagonist in some way or another. It's the Darth Vader to Luke or the Draco Malfoy to Harry Potter or to date myself a little bit, it's the Iceman to Maverick, thinking back to the Top Gun movies. Well, David, the story of David is no different. It too has a good antagonist. In fact, it has two good antagonists. Um, and they are Goliath, the great hulking giant Philistine warrior who David squares off against in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Uh, he's this iconic antagonizer. But there's also a second antagonizer in the story of David. And he's less often talked about as an antagonist, but in many ways, he is a bigger thorn in David's side. And this is King Saul. Uh, and we're going to have a lot more to say about King Saul today and how that struggle with David gets played out. 
Now, before we dive in to those two characters, Goliath and Saul, let's set the stage for the drama by returning to exactly where we left off last week. If you remember, we had just gotten into 1 Samuel 16. Uh, Saul had been rejected by both Samuel and God as king, and uh, Samuel was called to go and anoint a new king, and he was headed to Bethlehem. He knew there was this man, Jesse, who lived there, and that Jesse had sons, and, and, and one of those sons would be king. Samuel did not know which of them was going to be king, but he knew that one of them would be king, and Samuel knows that this is dangerous dangerous business, because when there's already a king on the throne, to go and anoint another person as the future king could be seen as an act of rebellion or insurrection. Nevertheless, Samuel goes to Bethlehem, and there he encounters Jesse. And Samuel says, says Jess, uh, uh, first of all, Jesse brings out uh, his eldest son, right? He thinks this has to be the one. It would be traditional for the eldest son really to be uh, in line for the position of prominence, like being a king. So he brings out his eldest son and Samuel looks him over and says, no, this isn't the one. And then Jesse brings out his next eldest son and he's not the one either. And then one by one, Jesse brings out each of his sons until he's made his way through seven sons. And at this point, you can see the text on your shared screen here. Uh, Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Now, at this point, we got to remember uh, that seven sons had come out and seven in Hebrew, as in other languages, is a number of completion. If this was just a good Hebrew story, you would expect Jesse to have seven sons and only seven Sons, And so if we get in Samuel's mind at this point, he's thinking, this is it. I've seen all of the sons and none of them are to be the king. But of course, as it turns out, Jesse has an eighth son, the youngest son who is a shepherd. Now, this is more than just a comment on the occupation of David's youngest son. It's saying something about his social status. Not only is David's, excuse me, Jesse's, you know that the son is going to be David. Jesse's youngest son is not only the uh, is youngest, so he's sort of at the bottom of the heap in terms of the sibling rivalries, but he's also a lowly shepherd, or at least that's one way to read this detail. But another way to read the detail uh, comes from the ancient Near East. You see, back in the ancient Near East, in Babylon, in Assyria, and so forth, uh, the, 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 the metaphor of shepherd was the chief way of describing a king. So a king was metaphorically described as the shepherd of his people. He was there to guard the flock and to, to shepherd them along. And I think a good Israelite reader, reader would have known that association between shepherds and kings. And so in this sense, to say that the youngest was a shepherd is not just to name his occupation, but I think there's an element of foreshadowing here. That is, it's pointing forward to the fact that this young shepherd boy would one day be the shepherd or king of Israel. Now, as we keep reading, we actually get one more interesting detail about this young David. And here it is. It says, so Jesse sends for his son and he comes. And the text tells us that, that the youngest son, David, was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was beautiful um, or as handsome. This term ruddy is really interesting. We don't use ruddy a whole lot in modern English. So what does it mean to describe David 
as ruddy? Well, there's a couple different possibilities here. Um, some scholars suggest that David had red hair. Uh, ruddy is another way to talk about redness. And so maybe De uh, David was a red hat. Other people say, no, 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 it's not that. Um, David had red skin uh, in terms of like a sunburnt or tanned skin, which would have been quite common for a shepherd. Both of those interpretations I think are possible, but I wanna suggest for you a third option that I think is more to the point. The word for ruddy in Hebrew is actually related to uh, the Hebrew word for humanity or human. Ruddy is adomni and a human is Adam. And so if we think about that connection between ruddy and human, those words in Hebrew, then perhaps what the text is telling us is that not that David was a redhead or had red skin, but that David was a mere mortal. He was a mere human uh, and nothing more than that, right? He, um, and this would have been important in the ancient world because there was this thought that kings in the ancient world were semi-divine. Uh, they had sort of a special or even otherworldly quality to them. And this is not so with the youngest son of Jesse. He's nothing special. He's a mere mortal. Uh, he is fully human. And yet, and yet we know that God will select this one to be the next king of Israel. And of course, that's what we read here in the final line on your screen. It says, the Lord says, rise to Samuel, arise and anoint him. Remember that word anoint, mashach, uh, which we get the English word mashiach or messiah. That is messiah him or anoint him to be uh, the appointed figure for Israel. Now, so this brings us then halfway through chapter 16, and, and, and David is anointed as king, but we must remember that anointing someone as king doesn't make them king. It designates them as the future king, but it doesn't enthrone them as an actual king. And this is a point that we sometimes forget in the story of David. Uh, David is anointed here in 1 Samuel 16 uh, as king, but he's not enthroned as a king until 2 Samuel chapter five. So 21 chapters pass between when he's anointed and when he's actually enthroned. And in, it's hard to get an exact sense of the time here, but probably in human years, uh, at least 15 years pass. So there's this long in-between space in David's life, a liminal space, an ambiguous space where he knows he is king or, or will be king, I should say, uh, but he hasn't yet become king. He is in some sense, he is already anointed, but not yet enthroned. And this is something I want to explore with you, this dynamic of being already anointed, but not yet enthroned. I want to explore that with you in our discussion in just a few moments. In either case, for now, let's fast forward through the rest of chapter 16 into chapter 17, because it's there that we first encounter the first of the main antagonists in this story. And this is the story of Goliath, kind of the classic confrontation uh, that we know of. This iconic status of this story is so well known. My son, uh, who some of you have heard me talk about before, um, is seven and he's discovered Survivor somehow. I don't know. It's a TV show. And he was watching one of the old episodes uh, or old seasons. And the whole season was framed as David 
versus Goliath. It was a bunch of like strong athletes on the Goliath team against a bunch of like uh, computer technicians or something like that on the on the David side. So this idea of a Goliath figure as the antagonizer of David has taken on a life of its own outside of scripture, outside of the church and in popular culture. So let's take a closer look at this Goliath figure. Well, to kind of set up what's happening here, uh, the Israelites are in battle with the Philistines. This is their arch enemy. All throughout First and Second Samuel, we're going to see Israel in battle with the Philistines. And in this one case, the two armies are uh, arranged on two uh, hills that are juxtaposed to one another. And one of the great warriors of the Philistines, this Goliath figure, steps out, and they basically propose, the Philistines do, to settle the battle by individual or single combat combat that is to say israel would put a, a warrior forth he would go against goliath in what would be a winner take all battle whoever won that army would be deemed the victor um it's a way of uh, basically saving lives right it's it's trying to sidestep the massive bloodbath that is war and we see this theme beyond scripture right if you think back to the iliad uh, hector and achilles have a duel not unlike this so as to uh, end the war between the trojans uh, and the greeks so this is a common motif in literature and here we see it getting played out uh, with Israel and the Philistines. Well, one of the first things we encounter in chapter 17 is this amazing description of what Goliath is like. So let's take a look at this. So uh, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now you might be wondering what in the world is a cubit and how big is six cubits in a span? Well, to work out the math for you, uh, a six cubits and a, and a span would be somewhere around nine and a half feet tall. This height seems mythic. I mean, talk about a great NBA prospect, right? I mean, a nine foot and a half individual would have had mythic dimensions. And maybe we can think that there's some hyperbole in this description, right? That maybe he wasn't exactly nine and a half feet tall, but this is some exaggeration to make a good story. And that might well be the case. In fact, we have some ancient manuscripts of this story written in Greek that actually say Goliath was four cubits in a span, not six cubits in a span. Uh, and that would put Goliath at, at about six and a half feet tall, which is still really big, especially when you're five, six, like I am. But this six and a half feet tall seems much more reasonable than nine and a half feet. Whatever the case might be, whether he was really uh, four cubits, uh, uh, six cubits uh, or four cubits tall, the point is clear. Um, it would only make sense. This was a giant of a figure, and it would only make sense if Israel wanted to have a chance of winning this battle for Israel to send out its tallest uh, warrior, right? You would want to pit your largest guy against their largest guy. And what's interesting here is that we actually already know as readers of 1 Samuel who the tallest man in Israel was. Can you think about who it was? All the way back in uh, chapter 9, verse 2, when Saul is first described, he is said to be handsome, but he is also said to be head and shoulders taller than everyone else. Friends, what would have been clear to an ancient reader is that Israel had the perfect warrior to go up against this mythically tall figure, Goliath. And that was their king. It was Saul. But here's the thing. Saul does not go out to battle. 
Uh, in fact, no one goes out to battle against Goliath for 40 whole days until we get to David. See, what happens is David is a shepherd and, and some of his older brothers are on the front lines of the battle. And David's task was to shuttle back and forth from his field to the front lines of the battle, providing bread and cheese and other supplies for the warriors. Well, David's doing this and he gets wind of what's happening. He knows of this Philistine and he starts asking questions. What will the person get uh, who defeats this monster Goliath? And his brothers hear him asking these questions and they sort of get annoyed with him. And, uh, and, 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 he, and there's this great interaction between the brothers and him. And the brothers are like, look, just stop annoying us. And David says, it was only a question, right? You can imagine the sense that David was used to getting picked on as a little kid, it, which is not surprising as the a son uh, in a large family. But then there's this really interesting interaction that David has with Saul. Uh, so Saul also gets wind of, of, of what David's asking about. And David says, look, let me go out and fight the Philistine. And here's what Saul says to David. He says, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a boy. Boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David says to Saul, now watch this response. David says to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, jaw excuse me, strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Wow, what an incredible speech, right? David is pointing back to the skill set he already has as a shepherd, right? He's already saying, look, as a shepherd, I'm used to protecting the flock against deadly predators. This Philistine is nothing in comparison to them. It's this great act of courage that draws on what we thought was a humble origin as a shepherd. Now it turns out that those skills are really actually what prepare David for the, the for the battle. So the other little element here is that there's uh, there's an aspect of foreshadowing once again. Remember back we said that ancient Near Eastern kings were referred to as shepherds? Well, they liked that. They thought that was a cool image. So ancient Near Eastern kings would make pictures of themselves as shepherds slaying lions. And so, in fact, the, the Assyrian king, I'll show you one example of this. Uh, it's a little seal, a little imprint that would have gone into clay and sealed a document or a jar. Um, it, it actually shows a, a, the king sort of in a characteristic pose, grabbing a lion by the mane and plunging a sword into its stomach. And if you think about it, that's almost exactly what David describes. This is what he does as a shepherd. This is how he handles predators. So, uh, and so Saul eventually gives in and he says, sure, you can go out and fight him. But Saul, you can tell he doesn't really get it because he, he thinks, look, in order for David to be successful, I need to equip him with my armor. So he does so. But remembering that David is small and young and that Saul was tall and a grown up, um, not surprisingly, uh, Saul's armor does not fit David. It makes me pick, think of this picture here or when uh, little Leo, my seven-year-old, puts on some of my clothes. It just dwarfs him. Well, I, that's the picture I have in mind here with David. Um, it, clearly, Saul doesn't get that this battle is the Lord's. It's really not going to come down to David's armor or his weapons. 
in any case, uh, there's this long buildup. There's 48 uh, verses of buildup to this battle. And then the battle happens in the space of just one verse. David uh, put his hand in his bag. He took out a stone. He slung it and he struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone uh, sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. That's it. 48 verses of lead up, one verse for the battle. This would not work on HBO, right? It would be the totally anticlimactic ending to this long series where the battle only takes uh, one verse. But that's how it goes in this epic encounter between David and Goliath. Now, you'll notice that the image on the screen there actually does not fit the verse that I have up because it shows David with a sword uh, seemingly about to cut off the head of Goliath. Well, this image comes from the verses that immediately follow. Verse 50 says, David prevailed over the Philistine, that's Goliath, with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand. And then the very next verse says, then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He grasped his sword. I thought he didn't have a sword, drew it out of his sheath and killed him. Then he cut off his head with it. So what's happening here? Did David have a sword or not have a sword? Did he kill Goliath with the stone or did he kill Goliath with the sword? Well, the fact is we don't know and probably both answers are correct. This is one of those places where what we see happening in the scripture is that two different stories, probably both preserved and circulated orally, are basically spliced together. That is, the Israelites knew of these two different stories about David and Goliath, one in which he was killed by a sword, another which was killed by a stone. And instead of choosing between the two of them, they say, we like both of them. And so they put both in the text itself. And we get this awkwardness between 50 and uh, 51, because it seems like there's a contradiction. Um, and, and scholars refer to this as a seam in the story, where there's sort of some unevenness where these two parts of the story come together. So one a final thought before leaving David and Goliath here. Um, this whole encounter with David and Goliath in history and in popular culture has become sort of the iconic representation of the classic underdog story, a theme where someone who's uh, lesser, less strong, smaller, whatever it is, triumphs over a great foe. And this theme has helped frame a lot of sporting events down through history. I think of the 1980 U.S. hockey team, uh, the Miracle on Ice team that beat uh, the Soviets, or in my world, I was a wrestler, college wrestler, and a former college wrestling coach. And there's this great story in, in uh, the 2000 Olympics. There was a heavyweight Greco-Roman wrestler Rulong Garland, um, who defeated Alexander uh, Karelin from the Soviets. Uh, and uh, Karelin hadn't lost in 13 years, and Rulong Gardner uh, defeated him. So we have these classic, like, upset stories in sports. It's there in film, too. We can think of Rocky or Rudy. Uh, all of these stories, in some way, go back to this classic underdog encounter between David and Goliath. But there's a really important difference that I want to point out. In Hollywood, the underdog story is all about the grit, the resolve, the courage, the hard work of the underdog. But here in this story of David and Goliath, we have no Rocky style training montage. David doesn't bounce back from rejection after rejection like Rudy. The difference, what makes all the difference in this underdog story is 
David's theology. It's the nature of how he understands the conflict. And we get a good sense of this um, when just before the battle starts and David and Goliath have this encounter. Um, and David says this to Goliath, you come to me with sword uh, and it's, it, should, it should say, excuse me, spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied for the battle is the Lord's and he will give me into your hand. You see, what David understands is that in reality, Goliath is not David's antagonizer. Goliath is God's antagonizer. Goliath was antagonizing or defying the Lord. It wasn't about him. It was about God. Uh, he defied the armies of the living God. And as such, it's not David's battle to win, but it's the Lord's battle to win. This echoes a theme back in uh, chapter 16 and verse 7, when David, when Samuel's going out to anoint the son of Jesse as the next king, um, God says, the Lord appears to Samuel and says, do not look on his appearance. Now he means the sons of Jesse or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, but the Lord does not see as mortals see. You see, this was advice for finding the next king, for finding David. But isn't it also a clue to how we should read the threat that Goliath posed? That is, David should not look on his height because God has rejected him, for the Lord does not see as mortals see. In other words, from God's perspective, this is not really an underdog story. From God's perspective, David obviously should win. It's Goliath, if anything, that's the underdog. And David had some sense of this. And I think that's what enables him to enter this battle and ultimately to triumph. It's not his courage. It's not his skill set. It's not his resolve or his training, but it is this theological belief that Goliath is God's antagonizer and that the battle belongs to the Lord. Okay, so that's Goliath. Let's now, before we wrap up, let's turn to the second antagonist, and that is King Saul. This is the one that I suggested before is probably more important and, uh, and more persistent in the story as an antagonizer for David. The origins of the antagonism between David and uh, Saul really go back to just after the encounter with Goliath. Uh, Saul and David come back from the battle. It's early chapter 18, and these women in the crowds come out to meet them, and, and they hear this chant being sung as they come back victorious. The people say, Saul has killed his thousands in David his tens of thousands. Now, I want to explain this phrase for you. And, and to understand what's going on here, we need to know a little bit about Hebrew poetry. What you see here is a classic literary device in Hebrew poetry called parallelism, where the last parts of these two different lines are meant to be synonymous. So thousands and tens of thousands are really meant to be read as having essentially the same meaning. It's two ways of saying the same things. And there's tons of examples of this in scripture. Um, there it is, synonymous parallelism, where the first line A and A prime really are meant to be the same. We have examples like, save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. In this psalm, lying lips and deceitful tongues aren't different things. They mean the same 
thing, although there are different ways of describing it. Or consider the beginning of Psalm 1. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. The wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers, they're not three different people. They're three different ways of describing the same sort of person. Well, with this in mind, I think the same thing is happening in this verse. It's not saying that Saul only killed a thousand, but David killed 10,000. No, no, no. The Israelite listener and reader would have understood this as synonymous parallelism. But here's the thing. Saul hears these words through the lens of jealousy. He hears these words through the lens of jealousy. Saul was very angry for this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David 10,000, and to me they have ascribed thousands. Well, that's actually not good poetry. Saul doesn't know his poetry. He doesn't know that this is synonymous parallelism. I think he's receiving these words uh, through, through, through a lens of jealousy. Right. So these words weren't intended as a slight, but he receives them as a slight, perhaps because Saul was already uh, aware that this David character would someday replace him as king. So he's already feeling vulnerable. And so he hears these words in a way that they were not uh, intended. It's from this point on that Saul seeks to kill David. This is really the turning point in the struggle between David and Saul. And at several points, um, we find that actually Saul uh, throws a spear at David, as is uh, depicted here in this wood carving. Uh, David uh, dodges out of the spear, but Saul tries to kill him with the spear. In fact, 10 different times, Saul is described as having a spear. And almost in every case, it's aimed at David. Now, this idea of an uh, an antagonist of David having a spear should ring a bell to us, right? Who have we already seen uh, who is big and tall and has a spear? It's Goliath, right? I think it's no accident that Saul is being described in very similar ways as Goliath is described. Goliath is this huge giant who aims his spear at David. Well, so too is Saul, this man who is head and shoulders above, uh, bigger than everyone else, who aims his spear at David. One is a Philistine, the other a fellow Israelite, but both of them are David's antagonists. Now, if we were to read through the next uh, 11 chapters of Samuel, all the way through 1 Samuel 31, where the book ends, what we essentially have is an elaborate cat and mouse game. David is the anointed king, but in these chapters, he's also a refugee. He's on the run from Saul as Saul seeks to take his life. And this map here, the green lines show the various movements of David. There won't be a quiz, so you don't need to memorize this. But by just a quick glance at this map, you can see that David is all over the place, right? He's into the wilderness. He crosses south of the Dead Sea into Moab and back again. David is constantly on the move because his life is endangered. He he is in refuge. Uh, he is a refugee in search of some level of safety, right? And, and notice, too, that he's not around the major cities. He's out in the margins of society. He's out in the wilderness. He's in the Dead Sea, right? He's in the places uh, that are less populated and less significant. David fears for his life as Saul seeks uh, to, uh, to kill him. Now, all along in this journey, we're going to revisit some of this material next week. All along in this journey, people bump into David 
And they recognize that David is the real king. They, they know what God has already declared to be true back in chapter 16, that David is the true king of Israel. And it's interesting to see who begins to acknowledge that. First, there's Jonathan, Saul's son. We'll talk about him in week three of this study. Jonathan recognizes that David is the true king. Even more shockingly, perhaps, is that the Philistines recon uh, recognize David as the true king. Now, remember, David isn't actually the true king yet. He has not been enthroned. Saul is still on the throne, but the Philistines recognize that David is a true king. It kind of reminds me uh, at the end of the Gospel of Mark when the Roman centurion says, truly, this was God's son. Sometimes it's the outsider who recognizes some theological uh, or divine truth in ways that the insiders cannot yet recognize. Eventually, Saul himself recognizes that David is king, but it doesn't happen until the very end of chapter 24. Saul says, now I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Now, what brought Saul to this moment? He's been in denial of that David would be king for quite some time. He's trying to, to seek uh, to kill David. So what changes? Well, this is one of my favorite parts of 1 Samuel. The only thing that really changes Saul is an experience of what I want to call severe mercy. And here's what happens. Earlier in chapter 24, uh, Saul is in pursuit of David. Uh, David uh, goes into a cave to hide out. Um, and as David is hiding out in that cave with the few men that are around him, Saul uh, goes in for a potty break. Saul has to go to the bathroom. So he goes into the cave. And of all the caves in Israel, Saul happens to go into the cave that David is hiding in. So Saul is vulnerable in this moment. Uh, he's not suspecting that David or his men is there. This is the perfect opportunity for David to kill his antagonist. But of course, David doesn't do that. What he does is he goes over to Saul. He cuts off the edge of his cloak. Um, it's probably a symbolic way to symbolize either castration or rendering Saul helpless or void of manhood. Um, in either case, he doesn't take the opportunity to kill him. It's an act of severe mercy uh, for, David's, uh, for David on, uh, directed towards his antagonist. Now, what's interesting is how this lands for Saul. Here's what Saul says, verse 19. For who has ever found an enemy and sent the enemy safely away? Saul is blown away by David's severe mercy. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me. Now I know that you surely shall be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So it takes this moment of, of mercy for Saul to see what God has already declared to be true, to, to see something that the Philistines already knew and that even his son Jonathan already knew, that David is the anointed. And however much Saul will be an antagonist, uh, David uh, will one day be king. All right, friends, with that, we're going to bring to a close the lecture portion of week two of this study. And now we're going to transition to a time where you can dig into some of these texts and ideas and themes a little more, more deeply through discussion. So have fun with that. And we'll see you next week as we turn to another chapter in this course on David. We'll see you then.
That was a great lecture from Ryan. Really understood the adversary antagonizer role in David's life. And we're starting to really see how that shaped who David was and and how he both lived into that in his kingship and how it redefined him. Now we're going to go into our next conversation, our our office hours conversation with Dr. Eby and Dr. Ryan, joined by Melissa. Melissa has a background in English and literature. And so she really gets into this understanding of the character of the antagonizer. And so let's listen and maybe think about antagonizers who have shaped us for the good and how God has used them, but also maybe how we've possibly been the antagonizer in someone else's life and God's used it for good with them. Let's continue on. All right. So we are here together with um, Ryan and Eby, and um, I am Pastor Melissa, one of our pastors here, and I'm excited to have a little conversation about this week's character and our life story. Um, and we're talking about the archetype of the antagonizer. Um, and for David, who we're talking about in this whole series, we have two. We have two people in his story that that seem to, to play a little bit of this antagonist antagonizer role. Um, there is the giant Goliath, who we all have have heard in, in our children's stories, right? And then there's also King Saul. So I wonder, as we look at these texts in 1 Samuel, um, as we look at David's story, um, where we want to go with thinking about antagonizers and how Goliath and Saul play that role. Yeah, this is a fascinating part of the story, in part because we're so familiar with this antagonizer figure outside of scripture. So mm-hmm. much of literature or film, for that matter, is built around a protagonist, but they're coupled with this antagonizer, sometimes more than one. Mm-hmm. But uh, they, they play a really important role in driving the plot forward. So what I'm curious about is what you all think. Why why are good stories predicated on having an antagonizer? Why not just the good guy or the good gal or something like that? Well, like like you said, Ryan, like you you cannot have a protagonist in a story without an antagonist. There's always something, whether it's a person or a, a figure or a force or, or whatever it might be in literature. You you can't have a protagonist without an antagonist. So it's it's required for really a story to have have to be interesting and to to move. So. Yeah, there's no conflict without the antagonist or antagonizer, and so conflict is what drives that plot forward. And the Bible is not only scripture, but a really great story. It is a great story. And it one of the things that strikes me, especially about David, is that it's his interaction with these two antagonizers, Goliath on the one hand and then Saul on the other, that we come to learn more about his character, who he is in relationship to God, who he is in relationship to his community, really comes to the surface through that interaction. So it's like we have to understand David through the lens of this conflict to really get who he is at a fundamental level. Well, and it's interesting because when we when we think about when you think about David and, and what we all kind of know about the Bible, what what tends to be the common stories that we know, you think David and and most people would finish it with Goliath. And and we think about that being the most common story we think of a lot of times with with David. Um, but he was really young at this point, so I think juxtaposing Saul and Goliath are interesting, not only because of their different ways of antagonizing him, but also it's at two entirely different points in his life too. So you see the ways that that, that plays into forming him, uh, but also telling us more about him as a person. Yeah, that's right. And the, you know, we there's so much attention on the Goliath story because it's such an iconic moment and it's easy to do children's lessons around it or have a picture around David and Goliath. But, you know, in the biblical account, it's only one chapter. And the battle with Goliath is actually just one verse. There's Hmm. one verse where they're actually battling one another. And most (laughs) of the attention of the biblical story 
rests on David and Saul and what their conflict is. And so, again, like it's a place where our attention goes one place, but I think Scripture's attention goes to another. So it's a really interesting dynamic that gets played out. Another difference with the story is that from the start, Goliath is positioned as a clear antagonizer, right? He's the Philistine champion. He is mythically tall, and he comes out for this duel on the battlefield. You know, it's a winner-take-all battle between David and Goliath. Well, we don't know it's David yet, but Goliath and some representative from the Israelite camp. With Saul, it's totally different. What we read in 1 Samuel 16 in the second half of that chapter is that At an earlier point, before the Goliath conflict, David comes into Saul's court, and he's Saul's court musician. And there's this line in that chapter that says that Saul loved David. So they don't start as an antagonistic relationship. They start actually with deep affection. And so I'm wondering what you all think. How does that change our sense then of the ensuing conflict between Saul and David? Well, I think it tells us that the line between antagonizer and ally or antagonizer and friend uh, isn't always so clear cut. Yeah. Uh, and so these relationships are are just as human as the relationships that we face, that we have friends that antagonize us sometimes. And we have antagonizers that often, like you said, bring out parts of us that are good or help hone qualities in us that are really desirable. And so that's often a very blurry line. There's a relationship, yes, right? And so so that protagonist-antagonist relationship, you very seldom will see when they don't interact or don't have some sort of intimacy in some way, shape, or form, whether it's a, a vulnerability with one, one another, whether it's um, competing in, if you, you look at different literary uh, pieces of, of they go to the same school and they're in competition for the same role in the play or the same, you know, same spot on the sports team or whatever it might be. Um, so they're, the, the fact that we start out with a... Um, a, a good relationship, a, a, a mutual relationship, a mutuality between Saul and David um, really sets Saul up to be a really great antagonist because you've got that depth of relationship. You've got that depth of understanding of one another um, that that provides a lot of fodder for, for conflict in the future, too. And it makes it more painful, right? Yeah. I mean, the fact that there was that affection and closeness from yeah. the start, there's a heartbreak, there's a fracturing of the relationship. And isn't that true for us, that the most painful conflict we have are with those who are closest to us, whether it's a sibling conflict, a conflict with parents, children, a conflict within our church, right? I mean, it's those close bonds, the people we're closest to and maybe even share a lot in common with. It's when they, when those relationships go wrong or, or break, that's the pain point mm-hmm. for us so often. Not It's not our enemies, right? It, it's the people we're close to. And the best antagonists are the ones where there is um, not just a physical antagonism, which I think is what, what Goliath represents, but that that psychological um, piece, because because for for David and Saul, like they're getting under each other's skin in a different way. Um, and so you... you yeah, I mean, David's presence antagonizes Saul and Saul's presence antagonizes David and and just who they are and, and the roles that they have been called to play. Um, there's there's something psychological about it that's a, a very different different role than, than Goliath plays that I think makes it deeper. Oh, yes. I mean, and, and especially since already David is loved by Saul, but also by Saul's family. Yeah. And those relationships will only get deeper and even more enmeshed as 
Jonathan and McCall and all these other people around them, it, one relationship is never in isolation to itself. Mm-hmm. It, it has all of these feelers go out and tangles itself in all these other relationships, which makes it even more complicated. Right. And there's a theological element to this too, because we have to remember, right? Saul was the first king. He was anointed by Samuel and he's rejected by Samuel and ultimately by God. And David is his replacement. But Saul is still on the throne when David is anointed as the next king. So there's this awkward in-between space where Saul is still the king. David is going to be the king. He's not yet in thrones. And so there, it's almost that the conflict is baked in yeah. at sort of this political level, but also you know, Saul knows that he's been rejected by God and David knows that he is loved by God and chosen by God. So what must that have been like psychologically for both of them to have that sense of Saul feeling uh, that he doesn't belong Mm -hmm. and David feeling as if he belongs, he's at the center. Uh, And that's a part where I actually have some sympathy for Saul. So it's easy to dismiss Saul as sort of the bad guy, the, you know, antagonist in the worst sense of it. But I... It would be a worthwhile exercise to read the story from Saul's perspective and say, like, what what was it like to be in that position? And how how much more painful could it be than not to just be dethroned as king or replaced, which in and of itself is is hard, but to be rejected by God? Like there's there's a there's the theological element of God being part of this and and you our, our reaction to something like that of, of you can't argue with God necessarily. I mean, you can, but in this sort of scenario, that's that's not what we're, we're um, doing. But but it, it's our natural inclination to point a finger. Let's yeah. find someone else to my, my frustration with God. Let me put it on um, this other person who represents this rejection that I have felt too. And we're kind of dancing around this of, of we've, we've called Saul David's antagonizer, but we're, we're playing around with Saul's story where we see David actually being Saul's antagonizer. Mm-hmm. So that's that's an interesting dynamic that they are the protagonists of each of their own stories, but show up as their each other's antagonists. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think the other element with that, again, kind of reading from the Saul perspective, is that I wonder if Saul, you know, thought back to what he did wrong to be rejected as king and then was aware of like what David would do wrong and he's not rejected as king and don't we mm. all feel that at some level whether i mean this to me hits home with siblings right oh, you yes. know like yes. well, it's not when, fair yeah when you my, my older <laughs> brother did this wrong he got this punishment so why am i getting you know yeah. it's that stuff that happens and i just it feels like that has to be you know the biblical account doesn't go into that mm-hmm. but i think it invites us to wonder about what's going on inside for Saul in his relationship with God. You know, Saul is a follower of God. He's not, doesn't follow some other God. So for him, this is a deep, this is the dark night of his soul uh, as he encounters this rejection and then his, uh, the newly appointed king in his midst. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm wondering about this too. You know, we're, we have this amazing moment. Uh, it's near the end of 1 Samuel, which tells this story of the conflict between Saul and David. And there's this moment where David has the chance to kill Saul. Saul wanders into this cave. He doesn't know that David and his men are hiding there. Saul is completely exposed. And David has a chance to kill him and doesn't. He lets him go. He cuts off a little hem, a little edge of the cloak that he has. Uh, so I'm wondering what you all make of that, this idea that at the crucial moment, David spares the life of his 
sort of arch enemy at this this moment. This moment, this person who's trying to kill him, mm-hmm. David Spears. What do you make of that? Well, he doesn't just spare him, though. By cutting off the corner of his robe so that he can demonstrate, do you see how close I got? Yes, he's sparing him, but he could have just spared his life and known he'd done the right thing. But he demonstrates it because that's also a show of power. Mm. So I wonder if David is kind of trying to walk a line here between uh, obviously trying to do the right thing, but also trying to keep himself safe and assert some of his own authority in the situation. I'm not sure, but hmm. that's kind of what it's, I'm wondering. It's like he's he's trying to let me show you just how much better than you I actually yeah. am. Like not only not only <laughs> did I did I replace you, not only did God choose me, but maybe he's he's uh, um, just digging the knife in a little bit harder by not killing him, but but showing, look how righteous I am. Look how gracious I am. Let me prove this to you. Interesting. And he does it again. This is chapter 23. Yeah. He does the same thing again in chapter 24. There's sort of a variation of this story. I think it's a second account. It could be two versions of the same story. But so it happens twice. And I think this is what y'all are naming. I really appreciate because this is the complexity of David. Mm-hmm. His motivations are not straightforward. And it's not hard to imagine that these are like conflicting motivations. So is this an act of mercy or is this an act of manipulation, right? Does this Or both. Or And I yeah. think that's right. It, yeah. it's, it's a little bit of both with David all the time. It's and you can't and. know for sure, no. right? I mean, and, and isn't that something we, we deal with in our relationships too? When you, when you suddenly see your antagonizer, the person that you are in conflict with or struggling with, you, you see this like bright spot of, oh, they did, they did this kind thing for me or they did this. But, but what was behind it? Yeah. You, you always have that suspicion. Well, and the, the fact that these other relationships are there, that Saul is David's best friend's dad, it's his father-in-law, it, it makes mercy and manipulation almost necessary to go hand in hand because all one or all the other could, one could actually put him in jeopardy, the other could compromise all of these other relationships. So it almost presents itself. I'm not saying it does completely because we always have a choice, but it almost presents itself as a necessary double-handedness. Mm-hmm. And keep an eye on this as we go on throughout the rest of First and Second Samuel and, and visit the story of David. There are all of these moments where his motivations seemed mixed or murky of some sort. It's going to happen with Absalom, his son, who he's in conflict with. It happens at these various points. So keep an eye on that. And it's just something to be thinking about as we try to wrap our minds around what sort of king was David to encounter these motivations that I think conflictual motivations that drive him is a really important part of the story. Mm -hmm. And then I always wonder what... What's going on inside of him? Does he want to do the right thing, but there's that human, you know, thing that we all have in us that that needs to add that one little jab? You know, mm-hmm. is is there a, is there a good intention that he just can't quite live up to? Um, and I think you see that in some of those other moments as well. That that maybe he's trying. Maybe there really is part of him that that wants to do the right thing, and he does, but he can't do it without twisting it just a little bit um, to to lift himself up in some way too. And one of my faculty colleagues at Candler describes David as the most fully human figure in all of scripture Hmm. because he does have all of these sides. And I love that about his story because I think we see ourselves 
in not just the characters of David, but we see ourselves in the complexity of David and all of these mixed motivations. And we are, we are that. Yes. <laughs> that that yes. is who we are yes. if we were being really honest about our own relationships and our own antagonizers and our own mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wonder what what David shines a mirror on for each of us. Um, can can we see those moments when when we're uh, maybe have good intentions or maybe realize oh maybe we were doing that for other underhanded purposes and things like that. I, I, I think this is an interesting one to to look at at those antagonists in our lives because antagonists don't necessarily always produce conflict and, and a negative outcome. You know, I, I think it's, it's an antagonist can also help us um, become better, can, can help refine us too, right? I think the antagonists always, whether they're good or bad, have a revelatory mm-hmm. function in that they, they pull off some kind of cover. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's actually a blessing, a benefit to have someone who's willing to uh, take off that, yeah. that shield and expose what's underneath. Right. If we're willing to allow that to happen in ourselves. Yeah. And I, you, that's an important point is that the you, we don't want to equate antagonizer with bad guy right. mm-hmm. or henchman, right? They're not ne- that can be the case, but it's not necessarily right. the case. We were talking earlier about the ways in which uh, our kids are, are antagonists and not <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I mean, y- you had some thoughts on that, EB, and I just thought like, yeah, that's it. Like the, our, who our kids are um, shape us. Because it's hard. It's hard yes. to be a parent. It's hard to make this. Talk about mixed motivations. Yes. Perspectives. I, mean, I want you to grow to adulthood and I want to not be a bad parent. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so they, they shape us. They form us. It's not easy. But these um, these ways of negotiating the conflict is crucial for our own character yeah. development. So the goal is not to avoid antagonizers in our lives, right? There are going to be antagonizers. If we don't feel like there are antagonizers in our lives, probably we're not growing very much. We're not letting someone push up against us and 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 refine us in that way. So it's it's not about avoiding antagonizers, but about taking those opportunities for them to 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 shape us in some different ways too. And part of that I think is the, as sort of as we're talking about this in this conversation is to have the courage to turn the conversation 180 degrees mm-hmm. and sort of wonder, like, who am I an antagonist for? Mm-hmm. You know, who maybe knowingly, but maybe not knowingly. Um, how does that work? So not just us as sort of the victim and how our antagonizers right. pressing our buttons, but we do that for other. We return the favor just as David returned the favor to Saul. We do that, too. So what does that mean? And what do we have to name as true about ourselves and our relationships, maybe with spouses, maybe with partners, maybe with kids? Um, so that's another complexity that this story invites us into. Yeah. I think that definitely opens us up for a lot of self-exploration and and requires some vulnerability to go deeper there. So hopefully our St. Lucers are going to talk a little bit about that in their life together groups with with um, our their Bible with our Bible study together and um, some of those opportunities to go deeper uh, with with looking into ourselves and not only looking at who our antagonizers are, but also um, how we play that role in other people's lives. So um, I think that's probably a good place to to leave it for us to to let people kind of wrestle with that for themselves and um, continue the conversations, um, hopefully with us online and in groups and um, in worship on Sunday. So thank you, Ryan and Evie, for this conversation. This was such a great opportunity to look at this text and it's particularly these characters that we um, we hear about, we, we know the names of, but maybe haven't looked more in depth with. So Yeah, great. Thanks, Melissa. It's great talking with you. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks. Thanks.